0: The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. Hey, hi, everyone, and welcome back. Today, I am very excited to tell you that we get to spend some time with Pi Bateman. Pi is one of the original founders of what has become the Empowerment Self-Defense Movement. When Pai started training karate, she was one of only a very small handful of women in the martial arts. Pai was the founder of the Feminist Karate Union in Seattle, which is still growing strong today, actually, and it's carried on by one of her students. Pai was chief instructor there from 1971 through 1984. Back in 1978, Pi published a book called Fear into Anger, a manual of self defense for women, which, by the way, you can still buy on Amazon. There was even a song written about her by the Righteous Mothers called Pi, which hopefully we can play pieces of during this episode. But if I haven't gotten permission yet, you won't hear it, but go look it up. It's a very cool song. It's called Pi, and it's by the Righteous Mothers. So, and that's mother, Mother's with an M. Yes, not... Mother's with an M. So, Pi has been one of my heroes since I first heard her name back in the early 90s when I was a self defense teacher wannabe. Some of you will remember Pi's amazing story from episode number two. If you haven't heard that episode yet about the continuum of sexual assault, be sure to go back and listen. But for now, and very importantly and very excitedly, and with no further ado, welcome Pi Bateman. Thank you. I'm thrilled, so happy to have you here. There are so many questions that I have to ask you, but what I was thinking that we could start with, but was really starting with the beginning of your journey. What year did you actually start training martial arts and what was your motivation and can you tell us what it was like back in those days?
1: I think it was 1969. And uh, what motivated me uh, and my friends to start taking karate was that we were in a period much like today when there was a lot of... um, a lot of dissension and a lot of uh, demonstrating and a lot of violence by police against demonstrators. So we thought after the uh, the Chicago Democratic Convict- Convention, when there was uh, what, um, a, when a, you know, you know, <laughs> you know. <Conkite>? yeah. <laughs> There we
0: go. (laughs) my God. We ended up getting there eventually. Cronkite. Uh,
1: Cronkite. Cronkite uh, uh, was in tears on the air uh, about what he called, I can't remember what he called it, but it was like something like police. I'm not going to think of the question. It's too early in the morning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but... But your your point being, he was in tears because it was something he hadn't seen before and it was very, right. it affected him.
1: And, right. And it was very, it, it was very evident that the police were the uh, uh, attackers. Uh, and it was, um, uh, it was pretty overwhelming. I was there. And so I know what tear gas is like.
0: So you were in Chicago at those demonstrations? I
1: was wow, I was, and uh, and I even got hit by a billy club, wow. Oh. But only on the shoulder. They had sort of squeezed us into uh, a narrow passageway between the street and the and the buildings of the of the uh, uh, of the stores there. And then as we ran along, they just sort of bonked us uh, as we as we ran they just went so we bang 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 oh my gosh whatever. they still
0: do that today they're doing that in portland at night
1: yeah it doesn't surprise me at all it's um uh, it's it's pretty intimidating uh but anyhow after that uh we my set of friends and i thought we well, you know we better get ready to be attacked here so we uh, we decided to look for a karate class. And so we went to a, a very informal karate class uh, taught through a community college. Uh, and this was my first introduction to uh, women don't belong in karate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the um, The instructor's wife, however, did belong in karate. But she didn't. Uh, she didn't really open her mouth. So here were some of the rules. In uh, push-ups, we did our push-ups from the knees, uh, which actually has some. It makes sense in terms of um, the biology, but anyhow, that's not what he was thinking of. Um, and uh, women could not kei or yell. Uh, we were to do internal key eyes, And uh,
0: <laughs> what is an internal That sounds like a very, for those of you who don't know that term, a martial arts term, a kia is a really loud noise that comes out of your mouth. So to have it be internal, that sounds kind of funny. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: It's like a silent prayer, you know.
0: <laughs>
1: Yikes. a silent threat. Um, but that's what it was like. Well, we didn't last very long there because we weren't learning anything. So we then went to, um, a real dojo where, um, there had been one woman, but for the most part, I was the only woman there and they didn't quite know what to do with me. But they uh, they took me in, they let me train, and I made myself very diligent, and I turned out to be pretty good at it. And I figured once I had established my value monetarily, uh, I could start demanding things. So in this school, uh, women were not allowed to spar at all. And women and children... Had uh, different belts than the men, than the adult men, and that the belt would be whatever color was your rank, but there would be a, a white stripe running along it, and that signified uh, that you were not a full grown up. I guess. So, so my first my first demand was, I want to spar, and so they let me spar mainly with teenage boys who are about my size. And, and here, here's, this is a really good example of the attitudes of men uh, looking at women in karate at the time. I was, uh, I was in a test for my next rank and uh, they had me sparring against a teenage boy. And, you know, it's, at some point, I did something that was kind of perfect. You know, I, I blocked his kick or punch or whatever it was that was coming at me. I blocked it, and I hit him square in the chest. And he didn't have time to react. He couldn't block or anything. And, of course, I key aloud. And the panel of black belt men who were judging the test burst out laughing. And so I stopped the fight and I put my hands on my hips and I said, what are you laughing at? And they said, you know, will go ahead. We'll go to the next thing. And then after, after the test, my instructor said, we weren't laughing at you. We were laughing at him.
0: Oh, jeez!
1: As, as if that would make it any better. Right. So that sort of sets the, sets the scene and, what i did was little by little i would just push for the most part i got what i wanted
0: well you were telling me that you would do competing in tournaments and things was that also a fight you had to wage in order to to get and who did you compete against were there any other women or were you competing against men and like what was that like
1: uh well there were there were a few women. There were a couple of women in Portland.
0: You said and they were twins, like Paula and Paulina?
1: Paula and Pauline.
0: Yeah. Paula and Pauline. Got it. Uh, and I think
1: they were already black belts when I started. So they had a whole lot more experience than I did. I do remember um, my, uh, my instructor saying, well, you don't want to be like them. They walk like men. They talk like men. Uh, but of course they were just normal women. So, uh so they were there but at, in tournaments at that time there was only one group for women. Right? So if you were a beginner or if you were a well-seasoned black belt, you were in the same group and you would fight each other uh for the prize. So that was, you know, I jumped in and I did that and I didn't I guess I didn't jump in till I was a brown belt, but um so, I was able to win some, and little by little, more people started uh, more of the teachers started looking for women uh, students because they saw an opportunity, especially after I brought my students to a tournament. so then I had a group of about ten students who were entering their very first karate tournament and the male instructors were going, where did all these women come
0: from? So uh, you're saying, like, there's an opportunity, I, like an economic opportunity.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. An economic opportunity. And there was probably also, you know, something like, you know, well, if they're going to have women, we better have women who beat them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. But um, so little by little. We increased our numbers, and they started. They divided us into two divisions: uh, the brown and black belts, and everybody else. That was the way it was throughout my time competing. But I think they have um, they they now there are enough women now to demand that they have more different divisions.
0: Right, but you were really—I mean, I got to say—you were one of the pioneer pioneering women in the martial arts. And at this point, you're in Seattle. Right. Yeah. And so and so. then here you are, you're brown sash, you're a black belt, you're going to tournaments, you're, you know, leading the way. And then you open your own school and you have your own students. And when did you open your own school? I think it was
1: 1971. It might have been 72.
0: Right. Right. And then was that it was a the feminist karate union. So I assume it was all women or was it women and children or what was the makeup? It was all
1: it was all women. uh, And it was uh, we started out the University of Washington. So it was a lot of uh, students. And we practiced on um, in university facilities. So the first first place was in a, a meeting room in the student union. Um, and then we got bigger and then we started practicing in the, uh, in the wrestling room. Uh, and the wrestlers really did not like us. So they came But in.
0: those are great rooms cause they're all padded and.
1: Yeah, they're all padded. Um, the wrestlers like to have the, the temperature pretty high. Uh, and so. It wasn't just that we were women. It's that we, you know, we, when we were done, they would have to turn the heat up. That's funny. Uh, and then, at, you know, at a certain time, we realized we needed to have our own place. And so we rented this little ramshackle, former tiny grocery store in a neighborhood and um, redid the interior and started our own school.
0: I love talking with you about this for a lot of reasons. And one thing, one connection that I'll make is that in my experience, a lot of the people that I know who become empowerment self-defense instructors get their start in a martial art training, learning to fight, learning to use their body, learning their, how powerful they are. And, and then it's like, Not, not everybody wants to do this because it's kind of intense and it's a lot and it's great. There are a lot of benefits, but how do I get the same feeling of empowerment and make it so that a lot of people can have it? And that's to me, that seems like for me, that was my road. And I've spoken with a lot of other people who had that same sort of drive into the self-defense field. And so my next question and probably the remaining questions um, are going to be about that. Like what? So you're here and you're up in Seattle, you've got your school, you've got your own space now, you've got your own students, you've been training a while. And how did that lead into self-defense happen for you? What was your impetus? What was what drove you?
1: Well, the impetus was that uh, we were the home of Ted Bundy's first murders and uh which brought many, many more people, many more women to my karate classes. Um because here, you know, we didn't know what was going on. No one knew in Seattle what was going on. All we knew was that a young woman would disappear about every month, uh, and so there was just a tremendous amount of uh, fear and tension, and uh, and looking for looking for a solution, and so the solution that was right in front of their eyes was to come to a karate class. And so they walk into this class with these women who are really intense and who are going to tournaments. And, uh, and so they begin to say to me, this isn't what, this isn't what we need. And so, you know, I heard that. And so I thought, okay, I'll make something else. And so what I did was I stripped down the karate techniques to just a simple punch and a simple kick. And that was all you had to learn. You didn't have to learn the uh, complicated things. You didn't have to learn the things uh, that were th- that were just hard to learn uh, because that's what people like in karate. Uh, so I did that, and as I started doing the stripped-down version of the, uh, of the physical techniques, I realized that I needed to give a lot more uh, verbal interaction. Uh, and, of course, the first thing was how to get women to believe that they could do something without being hurt badly or killed. Now the karate students learned that because they were sparring with each other. So, you know, they would hit each other and they they didn't it, they didn't care whereas, you know, I grew up thinking that if a man hit me, I would probably die.
0: Yeah, I think that was the um the marketing back in the day or the news reports was a woman if she fights back is more likely to die. And I think that is what across the board, people were being told.
1: Yes. And it's, you know, one of the things about making decisions about what you can do or will do is that there are two things two weigh. Uh, one is the severity of not getting it right. And the other is the probability that you're going to have to do something. And in, uh, you know, a life or death situation, you know, it it seems like a no brainer until you get educated about sexual assault and men's violence and get in touch with your own strength. So in getting in touch with your own strength, I thought of different ways that different events that would happen in a woman's life that would require uh, courage and withstanding pain. And of course, the easiest one was giving birth. And right. you know, if a if a woman can can give birth, now I've never done that, but I do know that it hurts a lot.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I I would joke. I think some women do it more than once. <laughs> so uh, you know, we go ahead and get pregnant, even though we know at the end it's going to hurt. So it's not that we can't take pain. We know that. So the next thing is to figure out if, um, if death is really the penalty for fighting back and not being the winner of the fight. Uh, and that was a little harder to do until Ted Bundy dumped it in my lap.
0: Right. And I remember that time, Pi, like I was, you know, I'm younger than you. So I was maybe in my teens or early teens at this time. And I remember all the fear around that guy.
1: Well, once, uh, once they found bodies and they could tell from the bodies that the woman had not fought back. And so i be, My first trope, so to speak, was uh, not fighting back did not help any of those women. And I believe very strongly, and so I would teach this, uh, that murderers are murderers. And you don't turn your ordinary rapist into a murderer by fighting back. If he's going to murder, he's going to murder, or he's going to try to murder. And you don't turn a rapist into a murderer by anything that you do. And then as we learned more and more about Bundy, we found out that um, there were women that he, I mean, he, his, his modus operandi was that he would be on crutches or have a cast on his hand or, you know, somehow look obviously like he needed help and he would get women to help him put a sailboat on his car. And that was one of the things or help him carry his books to his car. And, um, and there were a lot of women who, who at some point, if not at the beginning, felt that there was something wrong and they said, uh, no, I'm, you know, I'm out of this. Like there was one woman, at one of the Washington colleges, who did help him. She was carrying his books, and they got to his car, and he dropped his keys and wanted her to pick them up for her. And at that point, she said no, and she walked away. And so what we have here is a simple no stops Ted Bundy.
0: That is such a powerful example.
1: Yeah, and then we did have one, one example of a woman fighting back that she got, she went along with him all the way to getting into the car. Uh, and then she realized something was going wrong. She tried to get out of the car and he tried to keep her in and she fought and she finally got out of the car. And she became very important because she could identify him. But she was the only one that we know of who fought back. Okay,
0: for the listeners, let's take a deep breath and let's just say two things here. Pi, what I hear you saying is Ted Bundy, a serial rapist and murderer, a woman said no and that stopped the assault. In the first case, in the second case, the woman fought back and she got away. Just wanted to just repeat that and make sure everybody heard that.
1: Well, yeah. And then the, you know, the coda to that is that his last spree, uh, he broke into a sorority house where everybody was asleep. So he was making sure that nobody would fight back and then also in that same spree, uh, he uh, he got a twelve year old girl, uh. and so he, you can see that he's learning. He's learning to get weaker victims or get victims in um, in a in a situation where they're essentially helpless for um, for fighting back.
0: Right, he's actually getting smarter at picking who would be victims that would not fight back, who would be victims that would not get him into trouble. And we talked about that on this podcast with that whole continuum of sexual assault and violence is, this is a piece of the picture, the testing process, what you're talking about.
1: Yes. And he was very good at that. Like the first time, in Washington where the police got any information about him was at a big park and he approached a lot of women to ask for help. And a lot of women just said no off the bat. Uh, they, you know, they didn't want to do it or they thought, who is this guy? And uh, so that gave us a, a good picture of how, uh, how he could uh, select women who uh, who he thought he could uh, manipulate enough to get them away and, uh, and be able to kill them.
0: So all of this is unrolling as you're starting to teach self-defense classes, and it's informing what and how you teach. And the participants coming to you, are they at the university? Are they moms? Are they moms sending their kids or well,
1: I mean, given the atmosphere, the Ted Bundy atmosphere, I got a lot of media attention. Gotcha. And that took us beyond the uh, the student population. Uh, so then I was getting a lot more people with a lot more different uh, different backgrounds and coming from different places. I didn't teach any children at that time. Uh but the next, the next thing that I learned from my students was that uh, for the most part, when, te- when people teach self-defense, they're, they're not really thinking about what's going on at the time of the attack. So I began to take situations and build scenarios around them, sort of uh, exercises. For example... You've been at the grocery store, you've got, uh, your arms full of groceries and you're going to your car and you get accosted in the parking lot. It is so hard to drop your groceries. Mm-hmm. That big thing of milk. You would, I mean, you would not believe it. I mean, I'm, I made up bags of groceries, you know, and empty boxes of everything and they put them in the people's hands and, um, uh, And they would go in, and and your first impulse is to hug those groceries to you so that you don't spill the milk or break the eggs or whatever. It was just, it's just, uh, it's your first impulse, the first thing that you think of. And so we would practice. We would practice dropping the groceries, and
0: it's so awesome. (laughs) You would get these big bags and just fill them up with stuff, and they'd have to, they'd have to feel what it was like to like ah. Let go. Uh,
1: so I did things like that. And then I got really into it. People would come to me with um, with complicated problems, right? Like I taught a course for women in an Orthodox Jewish synagogue on what to do, how to protect yourself and your child uh, if you were accosted with when you had a toddler or a baby with you. Now, how's that? How's that for hard? Yeah. Yeah, because I don't know if you know about Orthodox Jews, but the women usually wear hats or wigs. And then they threw at me this other twist of a problem. And that is, uh, for those of you who don't know anything about the Jewish religion, uh, when a woman is having her period, she's uh, her husband doesn't touch her. And then after she finishes her period, she has to go to the synagogue where there's sort of like a baptismal pool called the mikveh, and she has to go sit in the mikveh uh until she's cleansed. I mean, I'm not sure exactly. But and then most people do know that on Saturdays, the Sabbath, which start on Friday night, uh Orthodox Jews don't do anything mechanical. So here we have a woman who's scheduled to go to the mikveh on a Friday night. <clears throat> she has to walk there. She can't drive. She um, and this and the, and the mikveh thing is shrouded in secrecy, so she can't tell her husband where she's going, although he probably knows. So I kept coming up with things. Well, can you call? Can you call home to say I'm on my way? No, that's a telephone, right? Um, and then I said, "Okay, how about if you use an, an air horn uh, as a call for as a call for help?" Uh, no, that's a mechanical thing. We can't do that, right? And I just had to, you know, keep going with, uh, how, you know, how you unravel having to defend yourself in this very complicated scenario. Um, but we worked through it the same as we worked through the children thing, which I needed a lot of help on since I have no children. So like, you know, if, you're, if you have a baby in a stroller, put the brakes on, get in front of the, you know, <laughs> get in front of the kid. If you have a toddler, um, run drills with him. Him or her as a, as a game where you say go hide, and uh, and then the kid goes goes to hide, and you can handle the the assailant. Then I and then I got more in, into more complicated things like I developed a self defense program for blind and visually impaired women. Wow, and you have it's not uncommon to find karate instructors who have a blind student. Um, and they're looking at just you know how do I communicate all of these all of these directions to somebody who's blind? And, you know, in my way of taking particular situations and trying to build a defense around that, I, I was looking at blind and, and visually impaired women as I started my research. And some women don't need any mobility device. they have enough, vision that they can get along fine. And then some use canes and then others use dogs. Now each of these presents a different challenges, and particularly if you use a cane or a dog. So for example, people who use canes have their canes in their right hands, if they're right-handed. People who use dogs hold their dog's leash in their left hand. How you have to make completely different uh, techniques to account for that that choice of which hand you are going to have free, but also you have to take care of your mobility device. And a lot of people, you know, think automatically, "Oh, well, hit him with the cane." Well, a the canes are not that that hard. They're, you know, they're they're pretty easy. They fold up, and you hold them in your hand all the time, so it's not like hitting them with a baseball bat. The other thing is, you do not want to lose your cane. Uh, and the same thing with dogs. Now, dogs who are trained to guide the blind, in order to be a successful guide dog. You have to not react to anything, and you certainly can't bite anybody who you think is going to hurt your um, hurt your human because that's not your choice to make and and actually they they train that out of dogs so a guide dog if you said uh, go bite him would not do it because it's it's one of the first things that they do is they um, the trainers uh, socialize the dogs, and they and they take them everywhere. and They can take them into movie theaters and restaurants and stuff. Um, as a matter of fact, I I had a meeting once with um, three different uh, women who use dogs, and we were sitting at a restaurant, and all three dogs were under the table, <laughs> motionless. I mean, that's what. That's what they're trained to do. So your dog is not going to save you. Uh, and your dog might be traumatized by the event. And as a matter of fact, I did hear from a woman who um, at, at a bus stop, somebody uh, came at her and she yelled out, which, of course, is exactly what any self-defense instructor would recommend. And the dog was, was traumatized. And so she had to worry about the dog and the assailant. And luckily, the yelling at him took care of the whole thing. But when she called the uh, the school that the dog came from, they blamed her for the dog's trauma.
0: Right, of course.
1: Well, been, those are just some examples of um, what I really came to love in doing teaching self-defense was grappling with problems that are not uh, the, where the solutions are not obvious.
0: And what I was going to say is that what I love about these stories that you just told is that that legacy is that overarching umbrella of this empowerment self-defense movement, which is that we learn from our students What are the issues that they bring to the table? You know, now we're looking at what does it mean to be transgender? What does it mean to be LGBTQ? What does it mean to be black? And can you call the police safely? And all of these, like, justice, social justice issues come to the table in a self-defense class in the same way And we get to do exactly what you're talking about, which is to ask the questions, to think things through, to do the research, to talk with people, to come up with solutions. And it's so cool to know that that was happening. I mean, you did that. You were laying the groundwork for what it means to teach empowerment self-defense, to be meeting our students where they are and to help solve the problems about how to stay safe, how to be empowered, how to have choice, all that stuff. And so from that, like from this perspective in 2020, it's really cool to see that you were, you were doing that. Well,
1: you know, there's, there's another side to it too. And that is that white women, especially come to, come to you with certain beliefs and attitudes and stuff. And, and one of them is that black men are inherently dangerous to white women. And I can't tell you how many times somebody would re- be relating an experience of, of being frightened, not of being attacked, but of getting her hackles up in case she did. And often she would say, uh, I was waiting at the bus stop and a black man came up. And I, I would, um, what my, my goal was to get them to focus on behavior, not on appearance. And so I would say, what was he doing that made you nervous? And a lot of times people just couldn't, couldn't identify anything. And and, and so I could say, you know, if a white man came up and did the same thing, would you react in the same way? And if you're reacting based on what you observe superficially, you are taking your attention away from something that could be really dangerous, uh, and you're, you're stripping away one really important skill that you need to, be, to build, and that is to distinguish potential danger from
0: not- Exactly. Which is another one of these like social justice areas where as self-defense teachers, we get to look at and help people peel apart, which is so great. Yeah.
1: And I didn't want to attack anyone who said that. I, I did want to, I wanted to do exactly what you said, peel it back, take it apart, not get, not get her defensive, um, and feeling like i just called her a racist but just leaving her to think about it
0: right as a like a self defense class as a among many other things an arena where we can start to look at our unconscious bias and the racism that's systemic in our society not from a place of blame or victimhood or anything, but from a place of empowerment and growing and connecting with one another in a real and authentic way. Yeah. So what were some of the obstacles that you ran into as you taught? And in in particular, um, from the martial arts community, did you run into obstacles from the martial arts community? or did you get support? Who did you look to for guidance or was it all kind of internal strength? And, okay, a long question. One more thing. What about the, those seventies rape crisis centers? What kinds of relationships did you have with those, if any? So big, long, many questions all rolled into one, but could you talk about some of them?
1: Yes. I'll, I'll start with the men in martial arts. Um, at first they didn't know what to do and um that sort of my first my first teaching of them was about calling women girls so uh so they would call women girls and then if the you know if they were calling a division in a the tournament they would go okay black and brown belt black and, belt, black and brown belt girls you know And so my students and I started correcting them. They would say girls and we would say women, and it became sort of automatic. Uh, And they began to learn it and to internalize it to the point that one day uh, at a tournament, I heard them call the uh, junior women (laughs) for the girls. for the real girls, jun- junior women. Uh, but no, we never really got any support. Um, we got a lot of just, you know, staying away from us, uh, a lot of, um, not a whole lot of pandering, but some of that, but there were a couple of guys who were really good fighters, uh, who treated me with a lot of respect. And there was one in particular who would come and ask me to critique his, um, his performance and would, would take that very seriously and, you know, and, and treated me with a whole lot of respect. And I, uh, I appreciated that. Then there was, um, moving on, there was a whole question of women fighting men in tournaments uh, which is something that I opposed because I was uh, taking graduate courses in physical education, so I was I'm very aware of the different the impact that the differences in body type have on on physical strengths and weaknesses. So, for example. Um, Women have narrow shoulders and wide hips, and men have uh, wide shoulders and narrow hips. And, and that makes a difference in uh, throwing and punching and, uh, and even kicking, whereas I have a whole lot more strength in my lower body than I do, do in my upper body. When I punch or kick, I get my power from my hips. Uh, not from my shoulder, um, and th- there are just lots of different things like that uh, that I think make it not not quite not fair, but not equal. I mean, it, it just isn't a good match. Um. So, but at one tournament they had uh, teams teams of five. who would would fight, you know, one, there would be like five matches and one team had a woman on it. And so I, I watched with, um, with curiosities how those men would deal with fighting with a woman when there was something at stake, like winning a tournament. And I had what I had seen in practice was that there were two types of reactions to having to spar with a woman. One is, uh, to be so scared. You're going to hit her breast <laughs> that you can't do anything. Um, and the other is to be so afraid you're going to get beat by a girl. that you just go bonkers on them. Um, so I, that's what I was watching for. And there were two men who, um, who ha- had real distinct reactions to it. One was to go bonkers. Uh, and the other was something that I hadn't uh, thought of or hoped for. I treated the woman just like anybody else. He wasn't afraid to hit her in the chest. Um, and he fought with her just like he would fought with, fight with a man. Uh, But that was rare and he is the only person in all my years that I have seen who could do that. Now, what was
0: the second question? The second, well, that's, that's huge. I mean, definitely wanted to hear about, about that and sort of what support or lack of support or blowback you got from the martial arts community. Um, And who did you look to for guidance? Like was this all of your own creation or did you have any mentorship and um and then there's also curiosity about the the rape crisis centers of the 70s and what kind of relationship you might have had there.
1: Uh no mentors. So um I was left on my own but uh I it didn't bother me. Uh now the rape crisis centers were really interesting. It was, I spent a lot of time making them feel, trying to make them feel comfortable with the idea that I was teaching women to fight back. It was very difficult for them, for them that immediately what what came to their minds was you're blaming the victim. I wasn't, of course. Yeah. Uh, but it was very, that was very hard. And actually... For the most part, they, didn't, they couldn't get over it. But I did come to realize, I did come to understand what, um, what was going on from a friend of mine, um, a psychology researcher at the University of Washington whose specialty is uh, means of coping. And he developed a questionnaire to help people understand, you know, how they, re- how they cope with certain kinds of stresses or situations. Uh, and one one way of coping uh, is to uh, is what he call, actually divided them into two kinds: emotion-focused coping and problem-focused coping. So, if you think about somebody who's taking care of rape victims, women who have been raped, you really need emotion-focused coping. And you need to give her emotion-focused coping. So that's where the "you did nothing wrong," uh, and, you know, and all that so- sort of stuff is focusing on her emotions. Self-defense, on the other hand, is problem-focused coping, and so there, you're you're looking at how to solve the problem and going about doing that and that's what self defense is and that's why we never did really have a good meeting of the minds we were dealing with different problems interesting that gives you an idea of where you know i where i gathered information uh all over the place
0: right wherever you could get it yeah. Yeah. What motivated you to write the book Fear into Anger? Was that a piece of this, like all your research and just wanting no. to reach a broader? No.
1: It was people keep kept saying, Can you recommend a good book? Oh, and you couldn't find one.
0: <laughs> so you're like, Okay, well, I'll just do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I I'm getting they that must, theme from you. But of
1: course, you know that was 1978. Was that was way before we had very much understanding about rape and self-defense. So, for example, I I used um, all of my models for the most part used uh, wore your karate outfit, your your gi, because I wanted to um, I wanted to make sure that people trusted that I knew what I was doing. Whereas now I would not do that and in 1978 nobody was talking about date and acquaintance rape so there's not a not a word of about that in fear into anger so um so it you know it was it was good for for what it was when it was but it it's um it's dramatically out of date and i would do it differently if i were going to do it
0: Well, you know, this whole field is just we're constantly figuring it out. Like next week I get to interview the two authors of a book about sexual assault on college campuses called um, Sexual Citizen. And they're at Columbia University and they did a five-year study specifically about sexual assault on college campuses. And it's paradigm shifting because we don't have a ton of work we have some and it's growing and there are like great research pieces about how effective self-defense can be in thwarting future assault and in healing from assault in the past but like back when you were doing it there was really not a lot to go on which I I love that you're like okay well I'll just write a book <laughs> <laughs> might as well I mean why not I'm doing everything else. <laughs> Well,
1: I, you know, I did write some some smaller things on date, date and acquaintance rape, and one of the most fun things I did was um, I uh, developed and produced a play about date and acquaintance rape, and one of my karate students was married to the artistic director at the Seattle Rep- Repertory Theater, so... <laughs> I had a lot of help on that, and um it's it's really interesting if any of your um listeners uh, would like to see that uh script, I would be happy to do it but i asked the i asked the playwright to uh give me a situation in which uh you have to decide when it's okay for her to start fighting back uh and the other thing I wanted was a situation. I wanted to see a good male, female relationship. And she got that. She got that in, she got it down in spades. I just, I I love the script and it was really interesting to take it to, uh, especially the high school audiences because the, uh, it was an attempted rape, not a completed rape. Um, and when people see that scene where this woman has, you know, she's drinking and she goes into a bedroom with this guy and they're making out, and she says, "Don't, no, don't do that," and he keeps doing it and she pushes his hand away and you know, all that, all this goes on and then she just gets off the bed and she says, "No, stop," and he grabs her arm uh, as she's headed for the door and he pulls her back and that's. And she kicks him in the groin and she gets out the door. So my question to the to the students would be, when is it appropriate for her to start physically fighting back? And I got a lot of people, mainly boys, but some girls, who said she didn't have any right to fight back because right. she kissed him. And... You know, and that and that would give us a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, but it was it's really interesting what you know, when they're seeing it played out on a stage how how strong their opinions come
0: out that is really an interesting way of bringing about dialogue, yeah. So are you willing to tell us a little bit about what happened to you in May of
1: 1984? Sure. Uh, And I've been thinking about this and I thought one of the things I want to do other than just narrate what happened is to uh, show the places where I learned something. Awesome. So the story is... That uh, this is an afternoon, and I was coming home, and I was coming up the stairs to my door, and I was grabbed from behind by a guy who had a knife and who cut the the cut me my eyes, but not my, not like my eyeballs, but the little the little space between your eyebrow. And your eyelid. Um, and so there, I knew that this was not going to be an easy situation to get out of. and uh, and he had grabbed me from behind around the neck, and the technique that I had taught for getting out of that was to you know, tuck your chin and spin away. Well, it turned out this guy was six six or something like that. And he had really long arms, so I could spin, but I couldn't get far enough away from him. So he got he got me back. So that from that I learned uh, I really need to to have my students focus on the body type of the assailant because it didn't even occur to me uh, before, uh, and then I made. I made the decision, and I still don't know if this was the right decision, uh, to open the door and let him in the house. And my my thinking was, in the house, it's it's my territory, and I will likely be able to pick up what I call a a weapon of convenience. So I would be able to, you know, grab a frying pan or something like that. Um, But he never let go of me. Uh, for for a while, and there was a certain point that I that I knew he was emotionally capable of killing me, and that and that's different from being physically capable of killing me. And I've thought about this a whole lot. Killing somebody is really completely, absolutely different from Anything that any of us knows, it's crossing a line that none of us can even imagine in any realistic way, in any way that would be a real situation. I, I mean, I may be speaking too broadly.
0: Well, I totally get what you mean, because just the like to even be able to consider the possibility just seems like so out there yeah so hard to understand and uh and so in my opinion,
1: those people are just they are so completely different from any other human being that it, it it's it's beyond useful it's or just not beyond useful it's, it just isn't useful to try to figure out why he did something, why he because did it's what not he
0: logical, did. it's not reasonable,
1: it's not logical, it's not human it's not human no matter how angry you are or how much you want the money or in, any of that. Uh, and sure enough, uh, you know, about the time that I had that realization, I saw that the knife was coming to my throat wow. and uh, just so, as a little aside, I had, I had taught defense against a knife and, um, well, the the primary the primary kernel of that was, a, you can survive being cut, and therefore you should be willing to sacrifice some part of your body to to save one that is more vulnerable.
0: Right. I always say expect to see blood, and then you won't be surprised. Like that's okay. You can keep going. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, and then in teaching,
1: I would say, uh, is there anybody here who hasn't cut themselves?
0: Picking up a broken piece of glass or cutting the onions, washing
1: dishes. <laughs> and therefore, we know that we won't die if we're cut. Uh, so the illustration, one of the illustrations for that was if somebody's coming to cut your throat, then you put your hand up in front of your throat, and you you know your hand's gonna get cut. You also are making sure that your throat doesn't get cut, which is a good bargain. And I also taught them a little Aik- aikido technique whereby they could pretty easily take the knife away from it. So I did that. I took the knife away from him. And of course, he was very close to me, in order to be doing that kind of damage. And I, um, I need him in the groin. And here's something else I learned: if you're close to some, close enough to somebody to need him in the groin, he's probably going to fall forward. Right. Whereas, you know, if you're far enough away to kick him with your leg then he'll double over. But, you know, when you're close enough to use your knee, he's going to double over you. So down we both went. Um, But we both got back up and, uh, you know, and everything continued as, um, as it began. And it went on for about half an hour before he ran away. And I remember the point at which I thought I need to do something more than defensive moves. Uh, and so I said to myself, "You better hit him." Now, when you, when somebody's really close to you, like over your shoulder, it's hard to get a whole lot of power into a punch, uh, and it's hard to get a good target too for either punching or kicking. Um, and so I punched him in the head. But of course I had only, you know, about a foot to pick up any strength. Um and so it didn't knock him over or knock him out or any of the things that I would wish, but um it did it did hit him and I'll be damned if he didn't hit me back. And so that's when I thought to myself, You gotta hit and hit and hit and <laughs> So and actually that's that's the point at which I don't remember anything because it, in all of that punching to the head, um, I got um, I got a brain injury so you know, sort of like what what a boxer gets because it's not so much that they hit you and hurt your brain, it's that they hit you on your and your head goes back or goes to the side or something and your and your brain is inside this little sack and it goes back and it hits your skull and then it goes back to the other side and it hits your skull so your brain is going crazy inside your head so that's what happened to me and at that point I don't I don't know what happened I know what the police Uh, discerned from the damage in the house, which was that I got away from him frequently.
0: (laughs) So do you think at this point, I mean, I'm assuming you're a martial artist, you're competing, you're fighting regularly, you're teaching these skills. Like what I'm hearing at that moment, this whole chunk that you can't remember, I'm assuming your muscle memory is kicking in and you're just like that will to survive and your body knows stuff to do. Yes. And there are two other things that I should say about
1: this. One is I knew he was emotionally capable of killing me, but I never
0: thought he would I never thought that he could kill me. There you go, like that inside your head, you're like, no, this is not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I
1: mean, it. I mean, actually, it never even occurred to me. It's like, okay, I have this. I got to get rid of yeah. this guy. I know he wants to kill me. But uh, you know, but then it's like he wants. So he wants to kill me. <laughs> he can't. He can't. He can't.
0: It's not going to happen. He can't.
1: Yeah. Um, and the other thing was, and and I asked, I asked the police about this because it's a fundamental given in, in most self-defense cases that you don't have to beat the shit out of him. Um, to, usually just yelling at him or hitting him or kicking him once. And he runs away. Unless, of course, you're married to him or his girlfriend, you know, then he has then you are his victim, and he's not going to go find another one. But the stranger will will go like, you know, this is this is too much to handle. I'm just, right, not worth it, not worth it, not worth it. And he, by my theory, should have run away when I first hit him. So, uh, so I talked to the police about that, and it turns out that he was a heroin addict, and I didn't know exactly what that meant, but. Heroin is an opiate,
0: a painkiller. <laughs> right. So he's not feeling anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. And he's also not able to reason, which somebody who is like not worth it, I mean, he wouldn't know, presumably, because he's high. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so actually, he, you know, he
1: must have been in that period of where he's not like zoned out uh, and unable to form a plan to, to hurt somebody. Uh, but he's still in the zone where he's feeling no pain. So that, um, <sighs> and I've always meant to, and I never have uh, managed to do this, but I really, I really want to f- find out what, the effects of different drugs are on a person and how that relates to self-defense.
0: All right. Anyone out there who needs to do a research paper, you got your topic, call Pi. That's a good question. How did you, like, there is a lot of trauma associated with violence and sexual assault. Uh, What kind of support did you get? Oh my gosh! Tons. Oh, could.
1: I mean, by by that time, I was really well known, so I got I got support from total strangers. Um, I was I was in the hospital, of course, for uh, some while after having brain surgery, and the police hadn't caught him yet, and so no one knew what his motivation was. You know, was was he coming after me because I taught self defense? Because it it was hard to live in Seattle at that time without knowing about me, because I got a lot a lot of media attention, and so my uh, my karate students set up a a schedule, and so that there was always one or two of them in the room, (laughs) my hospital room, in case he came back. Wow! But uh, but yeah, I I and the police were great they were um they, they would come to interview me in the hospital i mean they, and you know they want to get information as quickly as possible so you know i'm there i'm uh i'm probably on drugs i'm t- not functioning at 100% and so i i read the transcript and they asked me um what he was wearing and uh and i said well, you know just a shirt and pants and and they said well was the shirt a long sleeve or a short sleeve and, you know and i couldn't i couldn't give them much information and then they said well what about the pants and i said yes he was wearing <laughs> i can't do this without <laughs> laughing yes he was wearing pants <laughs> <sighs> and but anyhow, they would, you know, they would get to the point where they realized that I was uh, tired and they would quit and they would come back again the next day and pick things up. So um, I really appreciated the way they treated me, which um, certainly beat the hell out of hitting me with the billy club. Oh, my gosh.
0: That's quite a story, Pi. Yeah. it's And it's such a confluence of things of a woman who's a martial artist who fights who teaches self-defense who had the experience and who could live to tell about it and learn from it and pass it on so cool I'm glad to hear that you got the support that you did and um I think it would be a good idea for everyone to take a nice deep breath because it's a lot, it's a very intense story. And as we know, some of our listeners have dealt with violence and sexual assault. And so it's always good to take a deep breath and ground.
1: Well, you know, there there are two things that really help me besides the, um, besides all the support, Uh one was that I had been working in the field of self-defense and sexual assault, and I and I knew a lot, and so I never asked the questions that drive you nuts when you've been victimized, like "Why me? Uh, Why did he do this?" You know, the kinds of things that that it's normal to have those questions in your mind going over and over and over and um, and by by which you're keeping you keeping the trauma
0: fed, kind of by that, um, uh, right? That victim blaming, like what what did I do wrong? What should I have done differently? Why did this happen? Yeah. yeah.
1: And the other thing is that um, I I knew that I wanted to reestablish my life as if nothing had changed, and so, for example. I live in a lovely home designed by my architect X, and uh, most people thought that I would want to move. Well, no, I'm not giving up my house. But what I did was I, I stayed with one of my Alternatives to Fear volunteers for a couple of weeks, and I would go back and I would visit my house. And, you know, for... Increasing lengths of time, uh and you know so I was sort of desensitizing myself to seeing the house as uh, as a place where trauma happened uh, and then when I was ready to move back in i um I called friends together and we all came over or they all came over, and we talked about taking back our um our territory and um somebody you know um had a bowl of water and we all dipped our hands in the water and that became holy water and then it got sprinkled all around and um there was a buddhist ceremony I and mean, anyhow it was just it was very um it was very empowering in a sense you know this like my friends and i have come together to purposefully take back my territory
0: Not just the night. Take back your house. Yes. (laughs) Take it back and live in that space and create your life there again. Yeah. As a survivor. That's so powerful. I didn't realize that you're still living in that same house. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah
1: i did- I did do a little remodel on the uh on the deck, so the place where he was hiding is no longer a hiding place but uh, but no, I wasn't gonna give up my house.
0: You're a fighter.
1: I'm just a stubborn mule. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that about you <laughs> so um moving from that incredible story, I have just a couple other. Questions? If you do, you have another few minutes. Can sure. I ask you one or two? Yeah, more. So, um, looking looking back on the last five decades, there have been some some changes and some some movement in in teaching self defense and how we teach it now. This whole empowerment model, which is so similar to what you were doing back in the seventies, but now it's like 2020. So as you've seen this landscape shifting and changing and the newer research and, um, the newer social justice issues coming to be addressed in these classes, what, what changes excite you the most? And what advice do you have for those of us who are continuing to do this work?
1: You know, what the most dramatic thing I see is the increase in women and girls' participation in sport. Title IX was so important, and for those of you who don't know what Title IX is, um, among other things, Title IX, which is um, national law, means to any any educational institution that receives federal funds must provide the same amount of money and facilities to women's sports as they do to men's sports with the exception of football. Um, so football, the, what they spend on football does not have to be matched by what they spend on women. But,
0: but regardless, like weird and whatever, but, but, Yes, that's a game changer. Yeah. Title Nine was a game changer. It
1: is a game changer. So whereas in the early days, um, I, uh, a lot of my students didn't even have mature motor skills. So, you, you know, the, the, the idea that you throw like a girl is really like being stuck in stage three of motor development. And, you know, so so it's harder to teach the basics to someone who isn't used to using her body and i you know as soon as i was getting students who had been involved in sport i i, I could see i mean i could de- they could learn so much faster uh because they had those motor skills and not only that but they ha- but they had um uh, they had that realization that they can be hurt in a much more dramatic way that any of the rest of us have had you know i mean think about gymnastics right falling off the the beam <laughs> you know i mean that's so physical and there was there was a time when i toyed with trying to put together a program for uh, teenage girls who had been victims of child sexual abuse and teaching them to play Basketball for a number of reasons, um, one, one is that in basketball, you you know where your territory is, right? and, and people don't people can't cross into your territory without some retaliation <laughs> from you. Uh, you get knocked down and you get right back up. You uh, do things that you never thought you could do. You throw the ball harder and faster. And there's just so much. I I started thinking about that when another friend of mine was working on research on uh, teenage girls who had been uh, victims of child sexual abuse. And one of the things she said to me that was really striking is that those girls don't even know where their bodies end. They do not know their boundaries. Um and she was working on looking at uh, at these teenage victims and teen pregnancy. And when you put, you know, when you think about it in that way, you know, not even knowing where your body ends, uh, you—it's really clear how you, you're not making really good choices in terms of expressing your sexuality. No boundaries. Um, and so that's what got me thinking about basketball. And I've never done anything about that. So anybody out there
0: <laughs> who likes <laughs> basketball, <laughs> wants to do the research, wants to get a program going, there you go. Give Pi a call. <laughs> yeah. I'll I'll help
1: you in whatever way I can. That's so awesome.
0: And you're I mean, yes, Title IX, of course. Like huge, huge game changer. Huge. So, um, when you look back from this position, from where you are today, back on this body of work, your legacy, all these amazing things that you've done, that you've put together the, um, like the domino effect of all of these things that you started from your pioneering days as a martial artist, to writing a book, to starting self-defense, to, like the Ted Bundy years to, like all of your research, um, what are you most proud of? What are like what stands out for you the most in all of those years? Well, two
1: things. One one is I'm very proud of the women of Feminist Karate Union, who have not only kept the school going but they have. Uh, not been tied to doing everything the way I did it they have developed, they have grown and they have changed and uh, I'm very proud of that Um, the other other thing I'm proud of has more to do with self-defense and you know a long time has lapsed since I taught self-defense it's been quite a while but there was a time when when seriously, n- nearly everybody knew me and now uh, I can be anonymous, which is not what I'm liking, but every once in a while somebody will remind me, they will say, "Oh, I remember you, I was in one of your classes and that's what this is what it meant to me. And so even after all these decades, there are there are women who still remember what I taught uh, and who may or may not have had, Um, occasion to use it but they remember it and they remember especially what it what changed in their minds about what was possible uh, for them and so that that makes me really proud I you know I feel like I made a difference in the world so
0: you did you did make a difference in the world and you're perseverance, that stubborn tenacity, your fighting, your willingness to keep going and learning and moving and shaking has had a huge impact on, well, me personally and on a lot of people. I got a lot of feedback from a lot of people who are like, you're going to talk to Pi Bateman? And... (laughs) Like, you're a hero in so many ways. And just the, you know, thank you. Thank you for your pioneering spirit and for all the work that you've done to make the world a better place and for laying the groundwork for people like me and for people who are yet to come. And um, just on behalf of all of my listeners and all of my teammates and all of the people I know through the Empowerment Self-Defense Movement, thank you. Thank you for everything.
1: Well, and thank you. That makes me feel very
0: good. (sighs) Thank you, Pi. Thank you. It's affirmation time. This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool, and this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, do it because it's important, I think, for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay, so I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say, yes, here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong. I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! Woohoo! And hey, as a wrap up, will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week, communicate with me, review this podcast, like all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it? That would be super awesome take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. See you next time.